Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just open our hearts to these words. We know the one who is speaking to us through them, that he is trustworthy, that he is good. And we just welcome you uh, into our hearts as we listen, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Jesus was uh, certainly never one for uh, kind of taking a safe route when he was preaching. <laughs> um, he was not interested in, uh, in beating around the bush. Um, he gets straight to the heart of things, and he certainly does in this text. One of the, for those of you who have been around the church for a while, maybe you've heard of the hard sayings of Jesus. <laughs> Most of the sayings of Jesus are hard, really, but... Um, it's a way of just identifying that there are certain kinds of things that Jesus says that really do set you back just a little bit on your feet and ask you, say, what is he saying? Uh, certainly, um, the injunction to hate uh, is arresting, and certainly the, the, uh, the object of that hate is also very arresting. Um, and so what is Jesus saying to us this morning about uh, what it means to follow him? Uh, this, of course, is, uh, you know, hard to speak about. My, my son, Nathan, is uh, leaving for England for a year. Uh, not exactly the text I would have chosen on my own to, uh, to celebrate his departure. My father is sitting there in the back row. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> preaching about this uh, is, is, a, is a certain kind of poignant challenge. But there is great blessing here for us if we hear what Jesus is saying. Um, this section sometimes is... Uh, we think of this maybe as a, a word about suffering. Often when we hear the phrase, take up your cross, it evokes kind of uh, how we should bear up under suffering. I don't think that's what this is about, actually. This, uh, this passage of scripture from the gospel is not about suffering. It's about affection. It's about what you desire in your heart. It's not about fate. It's not about Oh, something really bad is happening. That must be my cross to bear. You know, that's kind of like an idiom in, in English language. This must be my cross to bear. That's, that's really fate. Uh, that's not really a interp good interpretation of that, that phrase anyway, but certainly here, this is not about fate. It's about choice. This is about deliberation. So Jesus is not saying when bad things happen to you, you should bear up under it and take up your cross. This is not what Jesus is talking about. It's talking about our hearts. Jesus is asking us to pause, to deliberate, to ponder, to discern, to contemplate, to, to slow down just a little bit and to, and to uh, take something under consideration, to make a choice, to make a deliberate choice. So that's what he's asking us to do. He's asking us questions like this. What's your goal? What's your purpose? Where are you going? What forms and shapes you as you're getting there? What resources do you have? And most importantly, not just what forms you, but who forms you. This is about vision and it's about love. The center of this text and the key for understanding it is the relationship between the disciple and the master. It's easy to forget that because Jesus doesn't, uh, you know, that, that's kind of implicit in the text. 
So if you think about it, um, in chapter 14, there's a great crowd of people that are following Jesus. This is in the north of Israel, near the Sea of Galilee. It's in his hometown. And this is the teaching ministry of Jesus. This is where he's doing a lot of teaching of the people that are in his hometown and in his home region. And there are people following Jesus, and there, at this point it says there are great crowds accompanying him. So I want you to think about that for a minute. You know, this is kind of outdoors, all right, and, and around the Sea of Galilee, uh, on the, on the uh, western side anyway, there's a kind of gentle sloping. So you can have great crowds. And because there's a little bit of a slope up the hill, it's kind of like an amphitheater. So it's easy on the eyes. You can see Jesus, you can hear him, and so crowds will follow him and listen. So, and, and of course, he's got his close circle, his, uh, his, his own disciples and followers are a part of that crowd too. And, um, and so these crowds follow him. And it, this is kind of arresting here. Uh, there's a, a, he turns to them. So right at the very beginning of the passage, you have Jesus himself stopping and turning. That in itself is arresting, and I want you to visualize that. You know, we're following Jesus, and all of a sudden he stops and he looks at us. He acknowledges us. He recognizes that something's going on. Not just like leading a parade. You know, he wants to engage. And at the very end of the passage that we're reading here in verse 33, it says that the last word there is disciple. It's about being a disciple. It's about what it means to follow, to connect, to engage with Jesus. And so at the heart of understanding this passage is it's not just a, as it typically is, it's not just a bunch of principles that we're supposed to follow. It's about a relationship that we're supposed to have. And that's what Jesus wants to get at this morning or in this passage. So he starts out with this very significant conditional word. Rhetorically, this is very powerful. If, if anyone comes to me. Now, of course, that's kind of interesting to think about because they're all following him. So imagine they're all walking along the Sea of Galilee and he turns to them and he says, look, if anyone comes after me, like all of you, <laughs> all right? This is a, that's why Jesus is slowing it down and he's getting to the heart of the matter right away. He's, he's pausing because, why is that? Because motives are hard to get your, motives are complicated. They're very hard to distinguish what motivates us actually. It's not automatically obvious what motivates us. And it's not just usually one thing that motivates us, it's different things motivating us at the same time. And that's why Jesus slows us down. And he'll often say, he'll often ask what to me are very obvious questions. Like if there's a blind man, he said, well, what do you want? Uh, to see, you know. Um, but there's a reason why Jesus asks these questions. What do you want? If you're following me. Because he wants to bring out into the open the deep need of the heart. He doesn't want it to lie hidden. He wants to bring it out so that he can treasure it and minister to it and shape it and form it and have it. So he says, if anyone uh, turns to me, comes to me. Okay, so there's that very important turning of Jesus and this conditional statement, if, if anyone comes to me, so the pro, the, there's a premise, and that's assuming that we want this. He wants to strengthen your desire by asking the question. Now, 
he brings in right in the very beginning this concept of hating your family. Now, this is a Jewish teaching style, is to use hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you make something bigger than it really is. You make a mountain out of a molehill. You know, I love pizza! Well, that's a little bit of a hyperbole, but we all relate to that because, okay, I mean, pizza's great, but I mean, you know, it's pizza. But we all know what we mean when we say we love pizza, you know. This is awesome. Everything's awesome these days. I use that word a lot myself. You know, what isn't awesome? So now we have to say something's really awesome. Or if you're Talia, it would be really, really, really awesome. <laughs> Talia's run out of superlatives. It's a problem for her. Hate is one of those words. Now, I'm not trying to dumb it down. It's a very, very strong word, and it's meant to stop everyone in their tracks, particularly in a very traditional culture. They were not struggling in that day and age with family values. They didn't need focus on the family, all right? They probably needed focus a little less on the family, maybe, but I mean, they just certainly did not need that because in traditional culture especially, all right, family was everything. Your family and your clan, People didn't think about what country they belonged to. They, they th thought about what family they belonged to. There just wasn't a whole lot bigger than that. Maybe my village and my region, but that, that's it. They didn't think about nation states. So what Jesus is talking about strikes to the core of your identity as a traditional Jewish person. And your family, uh, of course, was, as we understand even today, a nuclear family forms and shapes you, but it's also your place of resource. It's what gives you what you need all the way through. So family units stuck together from birth to death. They didn't have uh, you know, nursing homes and things. So your family unit was what shaped you as a person. You didn't think of yourself as an individual. That's um, kind of a modern invention. Back then, you were obviously, you knew yourself as yourself, but you were part of a, a fabric that you really couldn't pull apart. And that fabric uh, was your place of resource. So what Jesus is saying is, I am invading that core of who you are and how you're resourced, and I'm disrupting that a little bit. You can't follow me if you don't hate something about that. What is he getting at? Why say such a shocking thing? In part, the reason why is because without Jesus, we're just blind. Whatever it means to have a family, whatever it means to have resources, whatever it means to have an identity, whatever it means to have purpose and meaning in life, we're blind to it without Jesus. And the crowd is certainly experiencing that moment, rhetorically speaking. If anyone comes after me, has to hate his family, all of a sudden you're, you're experiencing a moment of total disorientation. Jesus hasn't yet disclosed in the context of his teaching how to solve that problem. Right now, you're just feeling freaked out. You're, you're, you're not seeing anything yet, and that's the whole point, that without Jesus, you're blind. 
you're blind to the nature of who you are, your family context, what your purpose in, in life is going to be and how it's going to be resourced. You can't know that without Jesus. You will keep asking that question and never getting a satisfactory answer without him. Because, as we know, in light of Jesus, we're not only children of our earthly fathers. We're children of our heavenly father. I'm not just a son of David Engstrom. I'm a son of God. I'm not just a a member of the Engstrom family. I'm a member of God's family, the body of Christ. I don't have my own identity. I have the identity of Christ in me. How could I possibly grasp such things without knowing Jesus personally? How narrow would my world be without knowing him? I would only experience the veil. I would never see beyond it. And it's what's beyond the veil that's so amazing. And that makes our life on this side of it worthwhile. Can't know that without Jesus. And he wants to disclose us that way. So Jesus unsettles all of that in order to break open the opportunity to insert himself there. That's what he's doing. And then he can disclose one of the fundamental principles of discipleship, and it's this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, that is a really tough statement, and I'll tell you why. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. So how on earth (laughs) are his people supposed to have any idea what he's talking about? It's just not rational. It means nothing. It's not filled with meaning yet. I have thought about this for decades, um, and I've never found a satisfactory answer to this challenge that they could not know at that time what Jesus meant. They couldn't. Now, you can say, okay, everybody knew a cross was a symbol of death, and they would have, I just don't buy it. I, I just can't imagine how anybody hearing that would know what on earth he was talking about. And do you know what? Isn't that the way it is sometimes in following Jesus? Does he not say things to us that at the moment we just can't fathom? In fact, isn't it often the case (laughs) that Jesus shares with us things that are at that moment unfathomable? Do you see why Jesus has to slow us down just a little bit? He's got so much to give us, but we have to metabolize it. You know, Baby Jack, where's Baby Jack back there? All these babies, they don't know what a prime rib steak is yet because they can't eat it. Uh, Sad for them. All right, or a pizza for that matter, for you vegetarians. But they'll get there, all right? And Jesus has so much to give us, but we have to metabolize it. It's challenging because nobody knew that, and that's a feature of discernment. And again, we can't even understand Jesus' words without knowing Jesus. And isn't that also a temptation we get into? That we end up trying to do the Christian thing without knowing Christ personally. It's fruitless. You can try hard, but like everything else, without knowing him, it doesn't work. 
Life with Christ requires, to use Jesus' language, that we hate our life and bear our cross. And we just need to accept these words for a minute. Following Jesus requires that we hate our life and bear our cross. It just does. And we can't work around it. We have to accept it. We can't get to the benefit of those words until we just hear them and receive them. We have to be able to relativize our life. We have to be able to see our life as needing more, as not being sufficient without something else. We are not able to understand ourselves. We're not able to achieve our goals. We're not able to make it all work out on our own strength. We just can't. We have to be able to look first at our life as a certain kind of failure due to sin. Now, let me just be really clear on this. I'm not saying you're a failure. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, that, we'll, I'll keep reemphasizing it. These are dangerous words. Okay, that's why we have to be careful. Hate, failure, sin. Do you see why knowing Jesus is so important? I'm not saying you're a failure. I'm saying all of us must recognize, to use Paul's language, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's the first part of that verse. Do you know the second part of that verse? Anybody? For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and have been justified freely by grace as a gift. It's important to know both those things. All right? Romans 3.23, memorize that. I say that every morning. So, to hate our life and bear our cross has to be set in the context of being able to receive the life that Christ is giving us. Because what did Jesus say? I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's really good news. We cannot have the life of Christ without losing our own. It's just because of sin. But when we lose our life in Christ, he gives it back with more magnitude and joy and vitality than we could have ever, ever achieved on our own. We can't coast easily and naturally into a life oriented around a relationship with Jesus. Let me say it again. We cannot coast easily and naturally into a life oriented around a relationship with Jesus. Why is that? Because our family systems are broken. Remember we talked about iniquity as being distorted. We're distorted. We're twisted. We're bent. We are not perfect as individuals. We sin. We transgress. If we respond to Christ, it's not through our own perfection, but through our need. If we respond to Christ, it's not through our riches, but through our poverty. And that's why as we move forward into Jesus' teaching, he says, take stock of your resources. Interestingly, isn't it, that Jesus says we have to 
take up our cross, and the two examples he wants to show have to do with resources. We don't come to Jesus with our hands full. We come empty so that he can fill them because we have to count the cost. Jesus says, consider these two examples. We have a builder. Who builds without a tower without first sitting down? Again, you see that deliberation? Sit down. Sit still. Deliberate. Get your pencil and paper out. (laughs) Right, Nathan? (laughs) Get your pencil and paper out. Make a list. And figure out, and it's, I, I can't tell if Jesus is kind of telling a little bit of a joke here. It's kind of a funny thing because what happens if you don't? People can make fun of you. <laughs> it's kind of a funny punchline. <laughs> she said, who, if you're going to build a tower, you know, I would have thought, thought it would go like something like this. If you're going to build a tower, make a list because if you don't, you may not get the tower built. Jesus says, if you don't, people are going to laugh at you. It's hard to me. Maybe he had a, you know, kind of winking at the kids around him. You know, <laughs> Look at Steve's tower. (laughs) They'd say that even if I built the whole tower, by the way, and I'd have to make sure I had contracted that out. That's a different sermon, but um, Jesus says that's not how you do it. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. That's a question of not having enough. That's a, that's a, the consequence, the, the point here is count the cost if you're a builder. Now there's an example of of a king. This is more drama. Like, this is kind of a fun story. You got a king going to war with another king. Who doesn't like a story like that? Deliberate is the key phrase here. You have to deliberate. You have to say, how many men do I have and how many do they have? And interestingly, this story ends with two pathways, both of which seem to be right. One is I triumph because I can win. The other is I sue for peace. I I gotta deal my way out of this. This is about discernment. Either you do this or you do that. Both are right. Who knew? Who knows? That's through deliberation. Here's the point. There's a goal in mind. The builder has a tower. The king has a, uh, either victory or treaty. So these guys are sitting down and they're thinking about where they want to go and how they're going to get there. They're not thinking about abstract principles but about very particular goals. And each of them require a sacrifice but the vision is clear and in light of that, the costs are measured. Hey Steve, how much lumber should you have in your shed? What are we building? Well, that's, that's not the point. We're not talking about the goal. We're talking about the process. So just how much lumber should we have? Look, are we building a, what are we building? That's what Jesus is saying. The vision's essential. It's the end that illuminates the magnitude of the costs. And it's the end that establishes the worth and the value of the sacrifice. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, what is the goal The goal is Jesus himself. That's what he's trying to say. I'm the treasure. I'm the pearl of great price. 
I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one that's knocking at the door of your heart. I'm the one that's going to come into you. It's me in you, the hope of glory. I'm the one that you're going to see face to face. I'm the one that's building your house on the other side of the veil. I'm the one. Isn't that glorious? Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How could he lose so much? The Apostle Paul, except that. Jesus was so much greater. Jesus was so much better. And what he was doing was so much better. What we gain is him. And with him, all of his resources We give him our lives, and he gives us his. And with it, we get his vision. We get God's sight. We see what he's doing in our lives, because life's hard. And yet with God, we can do all things. Here's how the psalmist says it in Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Ah. In the light of Christ, we return to our families and our lives changed. Now we're ambassadors of Christ and we become portals or doors and avenues for the presence of Christ to rule in and reign over the iniquity and the sin and the darkness. We become salt, Jesus said in verse 34, which is the verse after our reading. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? We have the vision when we know Jesus, to let go of some things in order that we might grasp other things more firmly. That's why this passage is really about who you love. One teacher of the church says it this way, and I really love the way he said it, the true self-denial which the Lord demands from his followers does not consist so much in outward conduct as in the affections, as in what you love That's what this is about. And as we've been learning, this isn't about trying to figure out in your head what's right and wrong. It's about seeing and hearing and obeying. As you can see, Christianity is not about achieving a kind of peaceful equilibrium in your life. Ah, if I could just get this thing straightened out, I could have peace and equilibrium. It's much more about stepping out onto a pathway that leads towards a destination. That's what Christian life is all about. It's about going somewhere. Those who follow him step onto a path of direction and movement towards a goal. That's why it gets a little itchy and scratchy sometimes. Because sometimes we want to be complacent and discipleship is about following. You know, the image of a disciple in Jesus' time A disciple was somebody who got themselves dusty with the dust of their rabbi's sandals. That's what a disciple was. You got yourself dirty with the dust of your rabbi's sandals. It meant that you were following him. 
is fundamentally about trust. It's about trusting the one you're following. It's about following the one you trust. I'll just close with a couple of questions for us today. First of all, have you deliberated just a little bit? Have you slowed yourself down? Let's stop for a second. Just imagine in your mind you're following Jesus and he turns and he looks at you. Slow down. Have you clarified the goal for yourself and established the vision? Be thou my vision. Have you approached Christ personally and directly and said to him, you are my vision? You're my source of life? You have everything I need? I'll follow you? And have you experienced personally his grace and forgiveness of your sin, the cleansing of your heart, been filled with his spirit? You know that the spirit says, Paul, Paul says this, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Have you identified your own demands and your own independent agenda and have you renounced it? Again, this isn't a principle. I'm not saying to sit here and renounce the things that you want. That's not what I'm saying. It may be that what you want is exactly what God wants you to want. Because when we're new creations in Christ Jesus, we want what he wants. And so this isn't why this isn't just a spiritual discipline of denial. Sometimes you need to affirm. And sometimes the thing you need to affirm is the very thing you want. Sometimes we get tripped up into thinking just because I want it, it must not be God's will. Sometimes it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> and we're afraid to say yes. It's discernment. I'm not saying take, ex you know, I'm not saying this. Identify what you really want and renounce it. That would be terribly confusing. I'm saying, why don't you sit down with Jesus and talk about it and let him reveal to you the clarity of your own motivation and it'll be clear then, clearer, what it is that you're supposed to renounce and what it is that you're supposed to sacrifice. In Christ, you're a new creation. And when his agenda becomes yours, then you're collaborating. Then you're a disciple. Then you're on the pathway together. Jesus is the way and he is the life. And the goal towards which we are moving we experience it now every day through the Holy Spirit. We taste a little bit every day in Christ, a taste of that new world that we're heading for. That's the glory and the blessing. When we belong to him, he gives us everything we need so that our purpose and destiny will, will be fulfilled in him. Amen. Hallelujah. Mm. Hallelujah. <laughs>